Amen. Um, I'm particularly excited to be here today just to share um, in the word with you. Um, thank you, Chase, for the invitation. Um, it was my intention or my hope, rather, to be here last year, but we had a baby last year, so I couldn't be here. We're having another baby this year, but I could still be here. So. This is baby numero quadro for us and the final chapter. This is it. Oh, no, yeah. I said four. I did. So. No, this is it. But um, just such a privilege to be here. Glad two of the four and my wife could be here. So we're just excited to share with you all the way in Aniana. So just in case you don't know, we live in Brookside. Brookside is 55 minutes away. So might as well be an hour. So it's almost insulting that it was only 55 minutes. So we are um, just really excited to be here. I'm just so excited to be able to share in the word with you and um, for these next few days. So um, I am charged with the task of talking today about what freedom is. And over the course of the next couple of days, talking about what true freedom is and what that means in the life of the Christian. There is much to be said in our world, and I do mean our world, about freedom. The interesting thing is that if you went around and if you polled most people, I think you would get varying definitions on what they would define freedom is. I think those definitions would revolve around what those people feel that they are most imprisoned to. If you ask a frustrated teenager, which some of you may or may not be, they may say something like, freedom is me being able to make decisions for myself. And if you ask a hardworking adult who is feeling the pressure of deadlines and, and just their workload, they may say freedom is a vacation. If you ask those who are in the world, and I do mean the world, they may say something to the regard of Freedom to be myself, to do what I want to do, to love who I want to love, and to feel whatever I decide I want to feel. See, that's the thing, though, about freedom. If it isn't rooted in the gospel, one of the things you learn about freedom is that it's relative. It's very subjective, and much like the world says about everything else, it is left up to no objective truth, but what I feel. But the thing about freedom, as we define it from the biblical perspective, is that it is an objective truth. It is an objective truth that we derive our understanding about what freedom is from the word of God. It is not rooted in what you feel. It is what we must know is true about the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Now, there is um, no ironic understanding that in our world, a world that proclaims to be free because they define truth as they define their feelings, that they're often more in prison than they would admit to. So let me begin all of our time together with one emphatic statement. And I see a lot of people writing and I would tell you this is one of the things you should write down today. We are all always a slave to something. 
We are all always a slave to something. Whether you are in your sins or in Christ, you are a slave. If you are in your sins, your sins are then your master. But if you are in Christ, the slavery that you have is a slavery that is unto Christ and unto righteousness. But there is a dramatic difference between the two. Though in your sin you may feel absolutely and totally free, you are completely imprisoned and in bondage to that sin. And though in Christ and a slave to Christ, you are absolutely free in him. To understand that balance is to understand the nature of our relationship with God. So jump with me if you will to John chapter 8 verse 31. John chapter 8 verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for um, freedom. We thank you that though we were and some of us may still be in bondage to our sins, God, you have provided for us the ultimate out through your son, Jesus Christ, God. He has borne on the cross the weight of our sins. He has paid the debt that we owed. He has justified us, God. He has declared us righteous, though we are filthy with sin. So, God, our only hope. Our only attempt, our only grope or grasp at freedom comes through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that revelation and that knowledge of the gospel will be ever present for us today. It is in Jesus name we pray. Amen. When working with themes like this, and I don't often preach with themes. Uh, Chase mentioned it. I am an expositional preacher, so I preach right through books of the Bible. I struggle with themes sometimes because I get nervous with themes. There is this tendency when we have a theme to interpret the scripture that we read by the theme that we have. But we must be cautious not to do that. We must interpret scripture as it is intended to mean to all of us. Jesus here is speaking to Jews who were obviously listening to him And as he speaks, he makes this statement and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, when many of us hear this, certainly this is a celebratory text and um, we are excited about it. But in as much as the statement is important, I do think understanding the nature of the response of the people who heard what Jesus said is just as important. Look at what they said. I think it's significant for us to understand their spiritual condition. Look at 833. They answered him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. 
Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do know what and you do, what you have heard from your father. When told that they could be free, they responded to Jesus with some disdain and a little bit of confusion. Their proclamation was that we are children of Abraham. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. I think this is a clear peek into their spiritual condition. They reason why they are children of Abraham. And it's because they are referencing their standing and their standing with God. They believe is based off of their heritage. The freedom that they believed they were experiencing with God was not because of some intimate relationship they had with God. It's just that they happened to be born in the right family. We have, they say, the everlasting covenant. We have been promised to be a lasting generation and we have never been enslaved to anyone. We are the favored people here. But I think this is a bit of irony, right? You cannot claim to be children of Abraham, children who descended from the Israelites, but also claim to have never been enslaved to anyone. I think anybody who knows biblical history knows that enslavement is one of the key components to the Israelites. Whether it be to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians, or to the Assyrians, they were always in slavery. So there is a little understanding that perhaps, though they are pretending there to be a little disingenuous here, that they know that Jesus isn't talking about physical slavery here. Because if he were referring to physical slavery, they wouldn't have made the case that we had never been enslaved to anyone. So maybe they know that he's not referring to just physical slavery. They know Jesus is referring to the slavery That every single one of us was born into. He is referring to the bondage that every single one of us needs to be redeemed from. He is referring to the fact that from our birth, we are totally depraved. We are not born in right relationship. We are born apart from Jesus Christ. And we need to be reconciled in right relationship with God. And our only hope of righteousness comes not through our own works, but through the works of Jesus Christ and his works alone. That is the only opportunity we have to be saved. But their response is emblematic of the response of so many people in our world. You need to be free. But the understanding of so many people is that I'm free the way I am. And the reason they believe that is because the narrative of this world is convincing them the more they live to themselves, the more they are self-sufficient, the more they are individuals, the freer they will be. But that does pose a bit of a problem. This current generation, which has been propelled into freedom, propelled into whatever you feel you do, you are, you feel it, you do it, you think it, you are it. Why is this generation the most medicated generation? 
There is this remarkable contradiction that happens in the world that tells us that we are to be free. But freedom is not just what you're free from. It is what you're free unto. And the struggle when we want to tell youth and young adults and teenagers about freedom, that we don't want to tell them about freedom in a way that it makes them feel like they now have a free license to sin. But the reality is, is that if you talk about true freedom and people understand the breadth and the depth and the weight of what freedom in Christ is, they won't respond with more sinfulness. They will respond, as John Piper put it, as a debtor to the grace of God. That is what true freedom should do. And so when we look at our text today and we understand what is fed in the world, I think if you poll most people and you ask them if they were free, and they would say, of course I'm free. I am not in prison. Because they believe that they are free, but it's not scriptural. So while I'm saying you can have true freedom in Christ, you have to realize that most of the people that you see every day are in incredible bondage. But not only are they in bondage, they lack the self-awareness to realize that they are in bondage. Think about this practically. Every single person who is outside of the family of faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ is utterly a slave to their sins. They are driven by their wicked desires. And the unfortunate reality, because I've been in ministry a long time, I'm a young man, but I've been in ministry a long time. The unfortunate reality is that there are so many people who profess to be Christians who will hear sermons like this every week and will go home and pull out their phone and look at stuff they shouldn't look at and do things they shouldn't do. Your freedom, if you are a Christian, cannot just happen when you are in this church. The freedom you experience in Christ should culminate in the worship you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But if when you leave here, you walk right back into the prison cell of your sin, and your sin locks the cell, takes the key, and lets you know when you're ready to put on your facade again, it will let you out. That is the deepest, darkest way that you can live. And that is not freedom. And I guarantee you, because we have all lifted, that there are people even in this room who think I've seen your Google searches. I haven't. But I know the frailty of our flesh. So when you understand that sin totally dominates you, that it is not a partner in your driving, but it takes over the vehicle 
and tells you wherever I decide you need to go, you realize you will inconvenience yourself to do absolutely anything to gratify the desires of your flesh. Sin dominates us. Sin rules us. So how do we think that that's freedom? I want you to hear this in Genesis 4 and 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That is the power of our sin. That when it is being described here in Genesis, it is like a lion waiting to jump on its prey. Its desire is always contrary to us. And the reason why we have to rule over it is because if we don't rule over it, it will absolutely rule over us. We do not have the strength, the will, the might, the power within ourselves, within our flesh to stave off the wicked desires of our flesh. We need the saving, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. This is the key to freedom in Christ. And this is where we're heading, right? To be free, one must realize what their spiritual condition is. That's where you start. The first time you hear the gospel is the first time you believe it. The first time you truly see Jesus Christ crucified in your place is the first time you see your own wickedness. It is not until you realize through the sovereign work of Jesus Christ that I'm not great. I'm not worth it. I'm not pretty. I'm not special. I am filthy the way that I am. And the only way I have a chance of beauty is born on the cross through a bleeding, bruised and broken savior. What an image. And the first time that we truly see him on that cross is the first time we truly see ourselves. And I like the quote. It says, when I look at myself, I don't see any way I could possibly be saved. But when I finally look at Jesus Christ on the cross, I don't see any way I could possibly be lost. The mistake that is made is that when we hear that we are called to freedom, that it is what we think we're free to do rather than what we are freed from. Look at what Romans 6 and 20 says. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And this this is one of the most piercing texts in the Bible. And Paul has a way to say things. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time 
from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ, Jesus our Lord. When we were in our sins, we were free from righteousness, though we were free to sin. When we are in Christ, then we are free from our sin and free unto righteousness. So I think we understand something. The struggle will be in how one defines freedom. When we think of freedom, and I know this because I'm working with seniors at my school on Romans 9, so y'all better be glad I'm not preaching to you Romans 9. When they hear freedom and when we try to define free will, we try to define it in a way that says absolute independence, total autonomy to oneself. This means that I have personal autonomy to do what I want, when I want, without any external influences. But we also must be realistic. We are never totally and absolutely free to ourselves at any point in our lives, no matter how free you think you are. First of all, everything you do is subjected to the will of God. Nobody escapes the sovereignty of God. Not a single person. Every time you blink your eyes, it was ordained, predetermined by God. There it is, the sovereignty of God again. <laughs> Even when we try to be desperately uninfluenced by the thoughts and the opinions and the feelings of others, we are still incredibly influenced by them. Even when we think we have gained total sovereignty over our lives and total freedom over how we think and how we feel and how we dress, we don't realize that even if I try to do something contrary to what somebody expects of me, the reason I'm doing it is because they expected it of me. So even in our freedom or a world that promotes you should do what you feel, are you doing it because you feel it or they told you you should feel it? Every decision we make is absolutely influenced by some external reality. And until we realize that we will never escape that influence, we will have a broken version and understanding of what freedom is. And we will empty, pursue empty freedom to the day we die. But I want you to think even more deeply about this. Because freedom, total and absolute independence in the Bible has never been a present. It's always been a punishment. Every time we see people be freed unto themselves, it is a punishment from God, not a present from God. You don't believe me? Let's look at a few things. In the garden, What's the punishment for Adam and Eve? You must leave the garden. 
You must leave the garden. You must be separated from God. You are left to your own devices. You want it to be the God of your lives. Here you go. The, the penalty for their sin is independence. When the Israelites wanted freedom from the Egyptians and then complained about it, they were forced to wander for 40 years because of their desire to live to themselves and not God. Independence was a punishment. One of my favorite books of the Bible, in the fa- my favorite chapter, Romans 1, the, the greatest punishment that Paul says will face any of us is that you will be given over to a reprobated mind, to a debased mind. So the punishment of God is not to be free to him. It is to be free to ourselves, which happens to be the exact agenda we are being peddled by the world. Paul says that those who reject God are giving over to their reprobated and sinful minds. They are free to themselves. Think about it like this. If you ever see a goldfish in a bowl and think, man, what a prison. He really deserves to be free. You know what? I'm going to let him go free. And so you take his bowl. And you spill it out onto the ground. There you go, little fish. Swim freely. Freedom for that little fish has meant death. What we often do not realize is that the parameters that God has given around the lives we should live as believers are not to keep us away from happiness or joy or pleasure or peace. It is to protect us from the freedom that we think we deserve. This is the mistake that many people have in understanding freedom. Is that they think that they can be free even when they are saved to do whatever they want to do. This is many uh, people's misunderstanding of one of the most beautiful doctrines, by the way, which is the doctrine of eternal security. It's a beautiful doctrine if you understand it. But most people don't understand it. Most people here, once saved, always saved. Which means no matter what I do, if I made a profession when I was five, you know, I didn't really know who Jesus was, but, you know, I made a profession back then. Now, yeah, have I lived like 35 years engulfed in my sin? Sure. But I made a profession like 35 years ago. So, you know, if I made that profession, once saved, always saved. That's not it. Because salvation without the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is an act. If you are not progressively becoming less like yourself and more like Christ, then whatever you think happened at the beginning of your walk didn't happen. You said some words, you did some things, but if the indwelling of the Holy Spirit did not begin in that moment, And that you are no better in Christ than when you first made that profession. I am sorry. 
Salvation doesn't work like that. I don't care if you made a profession. I don't care if you walked down an aisle. I don't care if you prayed a prayer. I don't care if you were baptized. I don't care if you say I'm saved. We will know what kind of tree you are by the fruit that you bear. The problem with that is that it has a poor understanding. The once saved, always saved crew, they have a poor understanding of sanctification at all. In Galatians 6 and 1, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in Romans 6, 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the penultimate point of our salvation and our freedom in Christ. We have been freed from the law that brings that sin brings death. And that is the beautiful reality of our lives that when Jesus died on the cross for those of us who believe he freed us from the penalty of our sins. He paid the debt. It was paid by Jesus for those of us who believe. That's it. And if that is the case, why in the world would I respond to the infinite grace of God by indulging myself in more sin? If I see the height and breadth and depth of what Jesus Christ did, that is for me. I don't respond with sin. I respond as a debtor. And not a debtor who thinks that I have any chance to repay him back for what he's done. But it's like you gave your life. I owe you mine. And what a cheap, ragged life it is, but it's yours. It is a life that is not half a fraction worth what yours was, but it's yours. The only chance that this life has any worth, has any meaning, has any value is if it's your life. So if you're not in Christ, of course you don't feel like you have value. Of course you don't feel like you have worth. Of course you don't feel like you have meaning. Until that life has been purchased by the blood, it has no meaning. And this is the beautiful part of the gospel. It ain't that we were worth saving people. If we were worth saving, then Jesus dying on the cross means nothing. It's the fact that we weren't worth saving. He saw the price tag that was attached to us. He knew that we were overpriced and he died anyway. And in the moment he died, he justified the price tag that was on our lives. That's the gospel. 
And I hate to break the news to you, but if you are not in Christ, your life is worthless. Your life has no value. This gives your life value. Paul says it is impossible for us to respond to the grace of God with more sin. For we who have died to ourselves, if we so claim, have been set free from sin. And no, that does not mean that we are sinless, but we should sin less. This is what true freedom really is. I have been saved from the penalty of my sins and through the sanctification of the spirit. I am becoming more like Christ and less like myself every day. I will never be totally sinless, but I should sin less. But this is the full promise. And this is what our hope should be in. One day I will not only be saved from the penalty of my sins. But when I come to eternity, I will be saved from the presence of my sins. And the glimpses of freedom that we get now will become our permanent and eternal reality. And I know you're all thinking about how sinful you all are because I'm thinking about how sinful I am. And I can't imagine a day that I don't have one sinful thought. I don't do one sinful deed. I don't utter one sinful word. But according to this Bible, there is coming a glorious day of freedom. That I will be freed from the presence of my sins. And I can't fathom it, but I can't wait until that day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. Lord, we know, God, that without you, we are, we are in bondage. God, that no matter what the promise of freedom is that comes from the world, Lord, it will only lead to more sin for us. God, no matter what our hopes would be in ourselves, that the deeper we dive into ourselves and our happiness, independent of you, God, the worse off we will be. God, if there is any person who is in this room who has felt the weight of these words today and who feel that there is sin that is weighing them down, that is dragging them, that is having them in bondage, God, That this would be the day that they see clearly the purpose of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, freeing from the penalty and one day the presence of our sins. God, the debt that Jesus paid was our own debt. We have been accruing a sin debt from the day we were born. And the only way we will be freed from that sin debt is through the the paying of that debt by Jesus Christ, by satisfying the wrath of God. Lord, if there are people in this room today who need to be free, we pray that they will hear the gospel. And that you will so sweetly and sovereignly save them. 
Lord, we thank you over the course of these next few days as we dig into freedom. That even those of us who are walking with you and have been walking with you will progressively experience more freedom and joy and peace and comfort and love in you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.